собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who generously give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you like this podcast and want to help support it, please go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to srbpodcast.org and hit that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So it's been a few weeks uh, since I released a new podcast, and I have some pretty good reasons. Um, Some of you may know, and for those of you who don't, now you know, I've been working on a new audio documentary about a black communist named Levitt Fort Whiteman, who is the only black American victim of Stalin's terror that we know of. And I had started researching Whiteman way back in 2019, but then the Teddy Goes to the USSR project fell into my lap and Whiteman was put on hold. And by the way, if you haven't heard Teddy Goes to the USSR, you can find it on your favorite podcast app. It's a six-part documentary that I did about a man named Teddy Rowe who went to the Soviet Union for three months in 1968. Anyways, in early October, I went to Dallas, where Fort Whiteman was born, to do some research on his upbringing and to learn about the black community there at the turn of the 20th century. Now, there isn't a lot of information about what Whiteman's childhood was like, so I wanted to get a better picture. So I went on a Black Dallas tour, which was absolutely fabulous, fascinating place in terms of the history of the Black community and issues of race in the city. And I got a chance to do some research in the Dallas Public Library. It was just an amazing trip. I, I, I learned so much and most of my assumptions about Southern cities uh, were really blown away, especially just to give a tidbit, the fact that Dallas was known as the Harlem of the South in the 1920s. And then after Dallas, I uh, went to Montreal, Canada, to give two talks. Um, I was invited by Alison Raleigh. Some of you might remember her. Uh, the interview I did with her maybe two years ago about her book on Putin Kitsch in America. Uh, please listen to that. It's a fascinating subject with lots of really weird things. But anyway, she invited me to give a talk uh, about Teddy Goes to the USSR and the process I went through in making it. And then another talk on my research on Love at Fort Whiteman, and this was at Concordia University. Um, I'd like to thank Allison publicly for the invitation. It was my first time to Montreal, and it was it was a great experience. So now I'm back, um, and this is this and this week's podcast is the first in the Reese's Fall series. Some of you might know that every semester at the University of Pittsburgh, I put on a semester long thematic interview series. And this fall, the series is called The Spectre in the Present, Trauma and Its Legacies in Eurasia. And the idea behind that is to, particularly with the war in Ukraine, is to interrogate the long historical um, phenomena of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union as traumatic spaces with traumatic histories, particularly in the 20th century. This series, of course, doesn't cover it all. Uh, that would be impossible, but I have a couple of events that, that deals with uh, some interesting subjects. And this is the first one uh, where I had Polly Jones, who is a professor of history at, um, at Oxford, and Zuzana Bogomil, who works at the Polish Academy of Sciences. 
to talk about the memory of Stalinism. So this, the title of this podcast is Working Through Stalinism. So I hope you enjoy the interview. Uh, it, was, it was really interesting and, and touches on a subject that I'm particularly fascinated with. If you can see from some of the interviews I've done, the issue of memory, of political violence, of you know the tragedies of the 20th century is something that I'm particularly interested in, especially how that memory still hangs over us today in a variety of ways. So, so Polly Jones is a professor of Russian at the University of College University of Oxford. She's the author and editor of several books and articles about Soviet cultural history, memory, politics, and literature, including Myth, Memory, Trauma, Rethinking the Stalinist Past in the Soviet Union, 1953 to 1970. This was published by Yale University Press in 2013. And more recently, Revolution Rekindled, the writers and readers of late Soviet biography, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. Zuzana Bogomil works at the Institute of Archaeology and Ethnology at the Polish Academy of Sciences, and her published works include, and this is just a taste, uh, The Enemy on Display, The Second World War in Eastern European Museums, published by Bergman Books in 2015, Gulag Memories, The Rediscovery and Commemoration of Russia's Repressive Past, also Bergen Books, 2018, and most recently an edited volume titled Memory and Religion from a Post-Secular Perspective, which was published by Rutledge in 2022. So here's Polly Jones and Zuzana Bogomil on Stalinist memory. So I thought by just having, um, giving you both a chance to kind of toot your own horn and tell us about yourselves. So I just have to to ask you to introduce yourself and, and talk about some of the main issues that drive your research. Susanna, let's start with you. Uh, okay, so I'm anthropologist and uh, sociologist. I have two educations and it's quite important because what I do, it's the field research. So I'm traveling and make interviews with people and how it happened that I started to make my research on Russia. So, uh, you know, probably you are expecting some family histories. Uh, maybe I could, I could say something because my grandmother's first husband was killed in so-called Katyn massacre. Not in Katyn, but but it was her first first uh, husband. I am my grandfather was uh, the second husband. So there is no, you know, very direct uh, family connections. It was simply scientific interest. In a way, memory of Soviet repressions is commemorated in Russia. Probably, you know, when I started my uh, studies, Poland was in another political situation than we are at the moment. We were still before entering European Union and Polish-Russian connections were quite close. We still could travel to Russia. Uh, so I had some, you know, some uh, views from that region. And then in Poland, I started to be interested in the memory of the Holocaust it in the late 90s, uh, beginning of the 2000s, till nowadays, it is quite a vivid discussion about it. And I, you know, started to read literature and like 
it was simply scientific interest how this memory, how this texture of memory materialized in Russia. That's why I started to travel to Russia and uh, for last, you know, over 15 years regularly, I, I made my research in, in Russia in different uh, places. Yeah, so I mean, I starting in the same vein as Susanna, I have no family connection at all to the region, but I did start learning um, Russian at school. I was very fortunate to be able to start studying it at high school. And that was uh, to, to age myself. I, that was during the uh, glasnost period. And I do actually think that all my, all my interest in memory that I've had ever since has actually come from that, that I started learning Russian just as the, the Soviet past was being rethought in such a, in such a radical way. And I think that, um, all of my research really has kind of been animated by the question of what role does the past play in the Soviet system? Fundamentally, if I were to sort of boil it down to a single sentence, it would be that. Um, and I'm interested, I guess, in it from two directions. One, you know, how do the Soviet authorities kind of try and control the past, which is a sort of obvious question to ask, and I think, but, but a more complicated one than I think has often been appreciated. And there are lots of mechanisms, but I think often there's a lot of uncertainty as well um, within the Soviet elite about what that narrative should be and how much it should be controlled. But I'm also interested in maybe how, how the regime also views the past as, you know, something positive as a source of legitimacy or as a way to mobilize people. And those two kind of things often obviously are in are in tension. Um, and so I'm particularly interested in the sort of regime's usable pasts. So the war, but also what happens when the regime itself decides to reveal even just a small amount of the, the truth about Stalinism, which is obviously what my first book was about, sort of starting from the point of what was Khrushchev doing with de-Stalinization? What did he intend to do and what actually happened as a result? And with that project, it was very obvious that the sort of the interest, I think, between um, the dynamic between what the regime thought it was doing or what it wanted to sort of how it wanted to narrate the Stalinist past and all the other narratives that emerged as a result of the sort of opening up of that question. But I think that I think that same dynamic is actually at play in, in the second project as well, which is kind of a sequel in some ways in that it picks up where the first book leaves off. So it picks up in roughly 1968, which is the start of this biographical series that I took as a case study in the second book. But again, you know, looking at how people respond to a kind of almost an instruction or a signal from, from the party elite um, about um, you know the need to rethink the past or to investigate the past anew and what different directions that goes in. So I'm particularly interested in um, how the artistic intelligentsia respond in a variety of different ways to that kind of signal. So not just sort of wanting to tell the truth about everything as, as is often thought to be the case, right? That writers just sort of take hold of this process and run with it. But there's actually a very considerable, you know, conservative faction as well in Soviet literature that, that I also wanted to look at. So, but looking at all those different constituencies and their narratives of the past and how how that interplay actually works, I think, is the thing that I think most fundamentally links the, the research that I've done so far. Zuzana, you said that it uh, you had this scientific interest in this topic. What what about it captured you, like drew you in as opposed to something else? You know, a lot of times, and, and here, a lot of times when we come up or something catches us in terms of a research interest, it could be personal. 
um, something about our personal lives it reflects on, even if we don't have any kind of roots to the place that we're studying. Um, you know, what drew you into this subject uh, of so, that's such a depressing subject? <laughs> Well, I wouldn't say that uh, my approach was depressive. So let's return to what I said before, uh, that I came to this subject of memory of repressions through my investigation of the memory of the Holocaust. So it, there is another parallel because I live in the uh, Warsaw city center on the region where the Warsaw ghetto was. And when I started to make my research in Russia, the museum of the Polish Jews was under construction. And it is just, you know, a few hundreds meters from my apartment. So it, it what started to interest me was a question how the memory of Kulak uh, and of Soviet repressions, not particularly Stalinism, even if uh, during my research, it was clear that it was like the main interest and the, it is the most traumatic experience is commemorated and you know it i started with everybody said no you know during the communism it was impossible to to remember to talk about it nobody knew about it it was taboo subject we only discovered it at the end of the 80s and my question was okay so how this process started you know you know nothing and you have to do something. And uh, in my book on the Gulag memories, I described what I call the carnival of memory. It is the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s, when this memory of the Gulag became discussed in the public sphere. And my question was, okay, so nobody knew till now anything. So, but we need to put into some narration. Yeah, we, we need to frame this memory. We need to make the first monuments, the first exhibitions. Monument, okay, it is very problematic, but still, as you know, most of the monuments are, became stone. Stone is very universal symbol. But what about the historical exhibition? How to tell this history? So that's that was my question. And I started to dig, to talk to people who, to the first curators of these exhibitions in different places, mostly in the Russian regions. So the Solovetsky Island, Komi Republic, Vorkuta, I've been to Makadan. So what was interesting for me, how those people who live in this trauma spaces started to make exhibition explaining what this region and people living in this region experienced during the repressions. Yeah, you know, I, I want to get to this this carnival of memory that you 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 talk about in your book uh, later on because it's a really interesting concept and it fits very well here to this this ebb and flow of memory. Um, but both of you are dealing with two different region, two different periods. Um, certainly that intersect, but, uh, you know, Polly, you're dealing with the Soviet period, right, right after uh, the process of destalinization. Uh, Zuzana, you're dealing with post-Soviet commemoration. Um, so you're using a variety of different sources. And I'd like you to, to, because as you pointed out, Zuzana, how do you narrate this? This is the big, one big question. How do you tell the story? How do you tell it in the micro and how do you tell it in the macro? Um, so I'd like to have you talk about some of the sources you use to interrogate uh, your your questions and subjects. Polly, why don't you start? 
the main thing I wanted to do in, in, in the first book, in Myth, Memory, Trauma, was really to kind of reinstate, I guess, the Sovietness of the project of de-Stalinization rather than just seeing it as this kind of great bubbling up from below of, of narratives of the Stalinist past. So I wanted to look in the archives themselves, not, I mean, I did want to look at sort of popular reactions to, to the speech, but I was also really interested in how kind of Soviet institutions responded to the fact that there needs to be a new narrative of Stalinism, right? So I spent a lot of time um, in archives, which I think a lot of the people here will be very familiar with, and I know Sean is for sure, um, in, in mostly in Moscow, um, I have to say, um, and I think both books could well be accused of being Moscow-centric, but certainly I spent a lot of time in state and party archives, and I was particularly interested, uh, the, the, some of the sources I found most interesting were um, looking at, uh, you know, records of publishing houses, journals, um, history journals, history institutes, um, other places that were kind of tasked with producing, right, new narratives of Stalinism and just how much controversy and disagreement there was over that. Obviously, like a lot of historians of the um, the, the Khrushchev era, um, I also relied a lot on local party reports, um, in particular, you know, the ways that people reacted to the secret speech, but also to the 22nd Party Congress. And, you know, obviously, those are sources that are, are problematic in many ways, but they do, even they give a really good sense of just how, how much disagreement and confusion and disorientation there was there. And then just maybe finally in the set in the second book, um, which, as I said, was more, it was more focused on on late socialism. Um, that project, for various reasons, was was also well suited to um, to oral history, and I ended up um, interviewing a lot of the people who'd actually been involved in editing and publishing and 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 reviewing um, the books that came out in this biographical series, and that was that was fascinating. But um, as with any project on late socialism, of course, I I've, I got to some some of those informants just a little bit too late. That that's a generation of people who are dying out um, very much. But I, I did feel really fortunate that I was able to talk to so many of them and for many of them especially you know the people who worked in this kind of official political publishers no one had ever interviewed them before because everyone had assumed that it was just incredibly boring and staid and conservative and there really was you know a story to to unpick there and it was it's probably my favorite thing I think I've ever done in in terms of field work was talking to those people. Uh, Susanna you mentioned you know in you you mentioned in your last answer stones Right. You're you're also I mean, it's your it's not just text, it's objects as text. It's how do you present a narrative in a physical space? Uh, so give us a sense of the types of sources that you use or look at or or interrogate for Gulag memory. First of all, these are interviews. So I don't use archives. So it is absolutely another approach to, to the research. Even if during, um, even if I try, you know, from time to time, I dig uh, in the uh, archives of the museums to see how they presented the Soviet period before uh, the Carnival of Memory came. But it is absolutely not professional <laughs> archive work. I mostly, you know, make interviews. I travel. I make also uh, participatory observation. I observe. I make the um, uh, space analysis. I traveled a lot uh, in Russia. I've been to Moscow and Peter several times, but uh, I think that most of my time I spent in the regions, in small villages, talking to people. Uh, I've been, I returned several times uh, to the Solovetsky Islands, which are my like, 
favorite place, I would say, uh, asking the same people several times, you know, to understand also how this memory changes with time, with the political situation. So it is like really a very ethnographic approach to research. I always love to ask anthropologists this because I'm not an anthropologist and all the people I talk to tend to be dead uh, <laughs> and they don't answer back. How, when you go to somebody and you're like, hey, I'm here, I'm at the Sylvieski Islands, I'm really interested to talk to you about you know, these horrible things, how do they respond to you? It is not easy. And uh, what was fascinating for me when I started to make my research, because uh, I also started to learn language during my research. So I, I am the first generation which was not obliged to learn Russian at school. So I started to learn language at the university and to be honest, during my field research. At the beginning, it was quite easy because I started my research in 2006. It was another political situation. Uh, it was, you know, after, you know, the 90s, the, everybody knew something about it. There were museums. The, the subject looked uh, like neutral, I would say, even if some people still were afraid of, but there was no afraid to talk about that past. And I have to say that my nationality in that moment helped me a lot because it was like I was from the from the brotherhood state. That's that's amazing because with time, you know, my last researches in 2019, I started to feel what probably Polly said just from the beginning that your nationality becomes a problem. But I think that I used to talk to people, you know, when you are traveling, you have always, and you make your research, you you are always, you have always some, some friends, some people who try to recommend you. Uh, and it, we talk about this snowball, yeah, that you, you look for people. And they knew me, for instance, when I've been to Solovetsky Islands or to Kotwas, I made all, I also participated in the conferences so they knew what I am doing and how I do my research so that's why it was like it was easier yeah for, for for me but there is always you know this moment of entering a new field uh which is like extremely exciting but also very difficult at the beginning did did people um I mean was it difficult to get people and and you could it you too Polly is it get difficult to get people to open up about these issues of traumatic pasts in repressions, even if even if it's not, I mean, it's probably more difficult if they had personal experience. But yeah, how did how did people you know respond? I'm very interested in the uh, in this last Polly book. What you, what you Polly will say about uh, taking interviews with uh, all our history? What concerns me because uh, my book on the Guac memories is mostly on this what I call secular memory. Uh, after that book and till nowadays, recently, I made I continue the project talking to the um, Orthodox believers and trying to understand how they remember the Soviet repressions. Be, because the, in 2000, the Russian Orthodox Church canonized nearly 2,000 Soviet uh, victims, calling them uh, new Russian martyrs and confessors. Uh, I'm talking about it because I saw a great difference between these two groups. So the first group with whom I make my research, uh, I made my interviews, were mostly representatives of the Memorial Society and also representatives of the museums, local memory activists. I would 
called them the secular activists who were more or less uh, uh, framed by the memorial movement. And they had the language to talk about it. So it was clear that how they remember this memory, they, they made the references to the memory of uh, the Holocaust, you know, this totalitarian frame, which for very long time was used to explain uh, the Soviet repressions, helped them to talk me about what has happened. But when I started to make my interviews with the religious memory activists, it became very difficult because it was like you ask a question, then don't understand you. And then they start to talk and you understand that they, oh my God, they answer my question, but not but it, it was not my question. I started to understand that we have to spend a lot of time to find a common a vocabulary because they don't understand my questions, but they really like, uh, I, I, I needed to uh, discover new questions that I can really understand how they approach because they absolutely function in another, I would say, memory frame than the, the those with whom I made my first researches. So that's why I was interested how it was with Polly. Yeah, well, I mean, it was, you know, I didn't do very much oral history at all for the first book, which is the one I guess that's closer to what to what Susanna was talking about in terms of, you know, the, the language that people would use to talk about memory and trauma. But when I was interviewing um, these various people who'd worked for a political publisher, I mean, as I say, they were just very pleased that someone was finally kind of interested in their in their stories. But um, they were actually really proud of, of um, the story that they told. And actually, in some cases, it, it, well, as with all oral history, I had to be a little bit careful because the, uh, the story that they almost, I think, universally told was that they had been this kind of pocket of free thinking within an otherwise very conservative institution. And I think there was a lot of truth in that. And I think, you know, often I would sort of redirect them to talk about the very practical things that they had done to ensure that that was possible rather than sort of, you know, being carried away with a very abstract or kind of general narrative of that. Um, but actually, yeah, I mean, I think I couldn't stop them talking, I think was the, you know, but it was very, it was very rich. And, and I was very interested in a kind of almost a kind of thick description. I mean, I'm not an anthropologist, but I was very interested in, you know, what the day to day life of Soviet publishing was like, you know, what were the kind of various pressures that they were under? What, how did they socialize in and out of the publishing house? And so I was actually very interested in that. So the interviews gave me a lot of just that kind of texture as well. Um, but I wouldn't say um, that I had that that issue that Susanna was talking about of a sort of mismatch of vocabulary or things that were, you know, difficult or perhaps potentially even traumatic to talk about that that wasn't quite the subject matter of the second book. Um, so it's a kind of different, different exercise. Polly, um, you know, I uh, both of you in, in your answers, there's some couple of things that kind of stand out to me. I mean, you know, disorientation, you know, the trying to find the language, the carnival of memory. Um, it, this is a very, it's a language of destabilization, a language of confusion. And Pauline, when you started looking and, and how people responded to say, you know, the secret speech and then trying to narrate repression and the same for you, Zuzana, how did they, what, can you talk about the language that they struggled with to try to narrate this experience like how did the how did this kind of shake out over time or were they provided with some kind of template i mean i think that the 
the sort of origin point really of, of all of the story that that I try to tell in myth memory trauma is obviously the secret speech really I mean that it's not as though it, it comes completely out of nowhere but basically you've got this incredibly weird document this kind of four hour speech that is half kind of you know, a very like limited piece of research into 1937, which the Central Committee had sent someone off to do. And half of it is Khrushchev's kind of improvisations or last minute edits. And so that's that's already kind of a weird template. And then you've also got the question that that in fact how they are trying to frame Stalinism is as, you know, a strictly limited problem that occurred in the past. And now they're going to sort of clear it away and move on. And, and it's very, it's it's not a traumatic discourse. It's not about kind of dwelling on this as some kind of trauma that needs to be excavated and investigated at great length. And there doesn't, you know, there's not going to be a reckoning with the past. It's just going to be and then we're going to move on. And that's what we need to do in order to move on to the glorious communist future. And of course, that's not how it how it plays out at all. So in other words, it's it in itself, it's a very, very kind of contradictory um, document because it raises, of course, so many questions. And yet at the same time, seems to be approaching the past as something that's now going to be sealed off and we're going to move on from it. Um, and so, of course, it, it leads to all kinds of different um, narratives. And some of the people I kind of felt most sorry for were actually the, um, well, I don't know how sympathetic I felt, but I, I, certainly felt they, I certainly felt they had a difficult task ahead of them, were people who were tasked with writing the official new party history and the official new Soviet history. So essentially what would replace the, you know, the short course, the old sort of Stalinist Bible of history. And they they know that it has to be a, a, a narrative that, you know, adheres to all the old Soviet rules of something that's positive and progressive. But at the same time, they've got to somehow find some kind of language to talk about Stalinism um, in this very limited way. Uh, of course, if we look at kind of literary figures, they, they kind of take this in a very different, well, different range of directions. Um, so, um, you know, Ivan Denisovich obviously is the most kind of famous literary work that comes out in this period. And of course, it treads a very clever line between seeming to be on the surface quite sort of optimistic that this is about a peasant who has a reasonably good day in the gulag. And of course, that's what Khrushchev likes about it. And that's why he decides to, you know, to authorize it for publication. But at the same time, it clearly, you know, it can be read in, in a very different way as, as, you know, a day that is actually um, obviously one of several thousand and, and very, very draining and that this is somebody, you know, and this is somebody who's experiencing a huge injustice um, and that, you know, really that that's just going to be the beginning of a much bigger, longer process of thinking about the gulag in that case. So, so um, but in a lot of cases, there are also, you know, much more conservative Soviet writers who are, they sort of understand that they can't write about Stalinism in the same way, but they're quite eager to try and find a kind of literary version of what Khrushchev has done. And it does result in some really um, odd hybrids, I would say. So you'll have a sort of brief mention of somebody who's been repressed, but then they've returned from the gulag and they're basically still fine. There are a lot of Soviet plays with that plot. So I was sort of interested in the variety of different types of narrative that, that, that you know, you could take from the, the impulse that the secret speech provided. Um, and I felt that hadn't really been captured in studies of the Thor, that there's much more of this sense of a Pandora's box, that writers were just ready and waiting to just reveal the truth about Stalinism. And I think a lot of writers, and especially historians, were actually much more anxious about how they can write this now and still be published.
Zusanna, I'm fascinated by this, the, the religious fig- people that you, you interviewed, because, you know, the memorial people and the museum people, they have, they have a language, right? They have this totalitarianism framework. Um, it's a very professionalized, to some extent, very, one maybe say even academic language. But for the, the Orthodox people you talked about, what, how did they, like, what are some of the themes in the language? Did they struggle with trying to explain what happened or... And they ex- explain repression. What? How did they explain it? You know, I think. Um, how do they explain officially? <laughs> the answer, the officially, because uh, you know the, the 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 new martyr discourse that I do my research on now or for the last years, and uh, the, the the whole phenomena started in 2000. You can imagine in 2000, the Russian Orthodox Church canonizes 2000 new martyrs. Uh, when they were preparing this mass canonization, they were also working on this narrative, yeah, on this main interpretation. And the interpretation is like clear, yeah, because uh, the Russian people left the God there was the revolution, they turned against, and because of that, the, the, the repressions came, yeah, because it was like, we were guilty. So there is a lot of, like, we were guilty for, for what has happened. It happened because we turned from the God. But there were some people who, even if it was like forbidden and they could be killed and they were killed, they like stayed with the God and these are the new martyrs. Uh, and that's why the church like canonized these new martyrs. Of course, there is a lot of politics because uh, the Russian Orthodox Church abroad in the United States canonized new martyrs uh, and the Tsar family already in the 1980s. So there was a lot of politics in this. However, what interested me is that, you know, you have this main narrative. Yeah, you have this mass colonization. You have new martyrs already. And uh, this is the, the frame. And now you have people and they can do absolutely different things. And now when you look on the sanctuaries of the new martyrs and the sites where they are like... Uh, commemorated and remembered uh, and they put uh, is uh, visible these are absolutely different sites because different communities use this past for their purposes so if you go to Butovo and you go to Yekaterinburg or to Alapayevsk or to or to the sanctuary of the new martyrs of on Lubyanka you will find absolutely different narratives. But what I think is important here is that they have this main frame is more or less the same. And in this way, I would say that this narrative is much easier to develop it because what concerned the secular memory, there was much more uh, conflicts uh, I said about the memorial uh, activists. Yeah, they like uh, there was a time when they started to work on this memory, and they were really active and you know struggle for erecting museums uh, and monuments. But in the same time, there were a lot of people who opposed this approach. Uh, why? Because there is still this convenience that some people were guilty that some of the repressed like deserved these repressions. And it doesn't concern only the murders and the robbers, but also, you know, there were some people who were the enemies and enemies of the people, like even uh, at the beginning of 2000, I put here, they were some 
people who like were against our our national community. So this secular, I would say, or what I we would call probably uh, civic memory, is much more divided than this religious, which gave the general frame. And you have different voices, but you have some, you know, common platform to which you can refer. Uh, what are some of the, the the main themes in trying to narrate uh, repression um, in the period that you studied, Pauli? The kind of main, well, there are many limitations, right, to the official narrative of, of Stalinism that the Khrushchev releases, as it were, or the, the official Soviet narrative of the Thor. But I one of the major ones is the fact that he frames it essentially as 1937, that, that Stalin, that the, the Stalinist past that he wants to be kind of confronted, even in this very limited way, is the great terror and its effect on the party elite, essentially. And that remains the case as well when he returns to, um, you know, public, more public criticism of Stalinism at the 22nd Congress in, in 1961. There's still that emphasis on these, on stories of, um, the party elite, individual victims, which in and of themselves are, you know, extremely shocking to, um, especially to the broader public, perhaps somewhat less so, I think, to the, the higher up the party one, one goes, but still, so the, the sort of framing of, of you know, the, the major, the, the sort of principal tragedy of Stalinism is 1937. Um, it is, I think, one of the major limitations. Of course, um, there's no discussion of, um, for example, deportation of um, of various ethnic groups. Um, there's very little discussion really of some key sort of issues from the war, um, the treatment of prisoners of war, for example, or the treatment of people who'd been kind of encircled um, and then had been um, arrested as a result of that, which is what happens to Ivan Denisovich, essentially. Um, there's There are all kinds of topics that, of course, are occluded. And in Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn says that really it's the fate of the peasantry that is the 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 major thing that has, is not confronted at all in kind of official um, de-Stalinization. So, um, so I would say that kind of focus on 1937 is is really interesting because even actually in Glasnost that remains I would say one of the principal sort of focuses. And even now, you know, when when people um, are protesting quite rightly, obviously, again, and or sort of likening Putinism to Stalinism, you know, this talk of a new 1937, I, I really feel that that sort of shorthand that somehow describing Stalinism as and, and the major atrocity of Stalinism as 1937, still to me speaks to a certain kind of limited framing of, of the memory of Stalinism, even though that's not how, you know, alluding to a new 1937, that that's not at all um, meant as a kind of limited criticism of you know, it's the worst thing one can say, right, about a contemporary regime. But to me, it still kind of speaks to that initial framing that that really occludes so much um, of of you know issues that now. I mean, I, I you know, it's it's very hard to see so many of those traumatic issues from Stalinism actually ever being raised in the public, you know, in the sort of general public sphere. As Usana, how did what it, it this quite this interesting this what Paulie said about 1937 being this like self-contained, you know, year of horror. What is the, what is your respondents? What is their kind of timeline of of repression? So I think that Polly, you show that you know during the Khrushchev speech, yeah, the, the the whole discussion is around it. It is a political event. What I do, I did my research fifteen years ago, and I ask people how they started to think about these repressions at the end of the eighties. And here, 
47, yes, it's present, but uh, but I would say that it is not the the frame of memory which like uh, which is an umbrella for all groups. So what was very visible, for instance, if you go to Sunday, now you will not go, but uh, uh, for years there were the International Memory Days uh, in Sandermoch, and that was you know amazing because the idea was. Uh, and the, in general, the idea of the memorial and many, many societies was to make of the memory of the Soviet repressions, repressions a kind of uniting memory of people of the Central Eastern Europe and uh, Asia. But it was quite quickly visible that it is impossible. In Southern Rock, for instance, you could find uh, representatives of different national uh, delegations. Poles always talk about cutting uh, Ukrainians about Holodomor, uh, Lithuanians, Latvians about uh, Estonians about deportations, uh, Russians uh, and Memorial always stress the, the great terror. And great terror is very, very present in their thinking about, even if they make a research on, on other subjects of the repressions. So it was really like visible that during, even during this, you know, common meeting, Everybody is talking about what is perceived as the most traumatic Soviet repressions that the nation experienced. There was never, you know, a kind of like, you, they try, but it was impossible to, to discover. And the same, if you go to different places, yeah, you, for Lebashova, Sandarmok, Vorkuta, you will find their national monument. So, you know, everybody has to put its own monument as if a common monument is not sufficient, but you have to stress your most, uh, uh, your suffering. This seems to be one of the, and and this is one of the the difficult things about talking about Stalin's repressions, particularly if you focused on the terror is who are the victims and who are the perpetrators? Right, it is a it is a very much carnivalesque thing, um, and it seems like in in the the dates or events one chooses or one identifies with is like the pinnacle of say whatever repression seems to also speak to who are the victims and and who are the perpetrators. How is this dealt with in the Soviet context, Polly? The issue of perpetrators or the... Oh, yeah. Yeah. And who is a victim and who is a perpetrator? Right. Well, I mean, I think that that's one of the kind of major problems. I mean, I think even now, I mean, if you... It, in actually what is now a really, you know, quite extensive kind of consideration of, you know, what's wrong essentially with Russian memory politics, that one of the kind of core causes is... Um, you know, in the view of people like Alexander Etkind or earlier people like Arseniy Raginsky saying that actually the problem is that there, it is actually inherently difficult to create a clear-cut narrative of victims and perpetrators when, you know, perpetrators themselves became victims and that this is part of what is blocking blocking the problem. And of course, we have in power somebody who is, um, you know, a perpetrator in some in some way, right, or who was implicated in those same um, state bodies um, in the Soviet era, which which also doesn't doesn't help. So I think that is, um, you know, that is part of the issue for sure. That that um, it it is difficult to to form a clear cut narrative. I just wanted to come back maybe to just what Susanna was saying about this kind of sense of um, you know different narratives because one thing that I think is really um, still we still really need to do um, with regard to the Thor and the Khrushchev era is to really look in more detail at um, non 
Russian um, narratives of um, de-Stalinization that, you know, as you said, you know, that, that, that Holodomor is, is the hot button issue um, in so much Ukrainian literature, um, you know, that there are, and, and, you know, the Kazakh famine, for example, you know, that these are, these are that these have such different resonances, and especially in literature that was not written in Russian or was primarily read in, in a different language, I think that that still, we don't have a sense, I think, yet of how the, the thaw de-Stalinization look different across across different Soviet literatures. I wanted to add something about these uh, perpetrators and victims. I think it is absolutely very difficult. It is, uh, and this is this limits that the totalitarian approach has in Russia, in Soviet Union, because quite often the perpetrators became later victims. And during my interviews, people always stress that we don't like this, you know, uh, comparisons. There was something, uh, something, it, it was something different. It looks that, you know, uh, this category this division is not like persuading them, doesn't help to, to understand. I think, to be honest, and I don't know how you would say, Polly, but I think that this concept of implicated subject is much better. You see how people in absolutely different situations act differently, yeah? And the, they are implicated in this very difficult uh, political, social family situation and i think it is like uh, much better you know if we also like uh, stop trying to look on the good and bad but everything is gray and in this gray you have different behaviors yeah do you have anything to add polly well no i was just going to add i actually had a um a PhD student who recently um, wrote a really interesting PhD exactly applying those ideas, Rothberg's ideas of implicated subject to um, to the, the Russian case, so especially looking at um, actually Vasily Grossman. This is exactly how he writes about issues of kind of perpetration and complicity and actually, and Solzhenitsyn has a lot of that too. But somehow, yeah, I think if we approach things in this binary way, we miss actually that, that nuance and that there were people trying to introduce exactly that that nuance to try and think about, um, you know, how do you talk about this kind of guilt? Um, you know, there was never obviously a, a Nuremberg trial um, in, you know, applied to the applied to the terror. I mean, Khrushchev uh, wanted to, I think, but there was never quite the political will to, to do it. Um, it's hard to imagine how that would have actually worked in any case. But again, it, it would have had, of course, that that's it, that's a very binary framing to even think of that. Um, and and trying to come to terms with that kind of complicity um, is a much more complicated issue. But as you say, something that might actually confront this trauma on a much more sort of societal scale. Uh, here's, a, here's a comment uh, uh, from Kathleen Smith in, in the Q&A. She writes, it seems to me that discussion of perpetrators has felt unsafe for Russians slash Soviets across time. Memorial leaders definitely tackled this issue, but I wonder to what extent the group studied literary figures or religious activists broached the topic of who the perpetrators are. I mean, in the literary world, there would. Uh, hi, Kelly. By the way, <laughs> nice. <to, laughs> that's a great question, of course. Um, I mean, in the literary world, there were absolutely meetings where people named um, people who'd written denunciations um, and tried to get them thrown out of of 
various branches of the Writers' Union, for example. So, so that definitely happened in, in 1956. Um, and, and Kelly will know some of the, some of the uh, archival records I'm talking about. Um, but it was always very local, I think. And of course, it was, it was very dangerous and it very, it very rarely did go anywhere. It very rarely produced any kinds of results. But, but that was definitely, you know, in, in many cases, people were able to say, you know, this was somebody who wrote not just one denunciation, but who was kind of in the business of just of just writing this and made their whole career of it. And those people were known. And as soon as it became as soon as it appeared to be possible to to talk about it, that came out. But not not everywhere. But but, you know, in um, in certain environments like the literary environment that that was that was discussed. What, what about for your religious, some of your religious figures or even some of your other respondents, the question of perpetrators? I had a few interviews, and that was for me very interesting. Uh, young people uh, who, young, maybe 30, 40 something, who uh, analyzed the situation where they are and tried to understand what did they uh, ancestors. And uh, because, uh, so uh, in the book, What Memories, I, I talk about one guy in Kohlebach who says, uh, if I am here, it means that my ancestors did something. It is not that they were uh, completely poor victims. They they did something. And he tried to make the redemption, you know, to put crosses and to uh, engage us in memory work. Uh, I had a great discussions with a few religious people in the Moscow region, who one of them wrote a book about his, he's an Orthodox priest, and he wrote a book about his grandfather, who was the system supporter. He was NKVD healer, and he later was killed. And he asked in this book if he should condemn him or he should accept the situation, accept his story, let's say. I also made interviews with people who... <laughs> who has their relatives in uh, killed in Butovo, who are new martyrs, and in, in Komunarka, who were like the, the you know, the, the people from the same family, yeah? One of them killed in Butovo, and now he's the new martyr, and another um, uh, grandfather was like a supporter of the system, uh, and he's in Komunarka. So it is, there, there is a lot of these discussions, I think that here everybody tried to find the answer for himself. It, and here on this level, I would say it is absolutely individual trauma, family trauma. It is not the collective trauma of the whole society because there is no this discussion on the level of the society. This is only on the level of your personal decisions, what you do with what you know about your ancestors and relatives. Here is uh, here's a comment from Steve Barnes. Nice to see you there, Steve. Uh, sorry that he says, he writes, sorry, this is a comment, but not a question, but great discussion. Questions of perpetrators definitely, uh, definitely interesting in the non-Russian context. It's similar to Rugnitsky's notion of Russian memory as victims without perpetrators. But at least in Kazakhstan, it is often present instead, instead victims with no Kazakh perpetrators, though Russian perpetrators are potentially okay to talk about, which I'm not surprised. Um, I mean, you, we could probably find in a lot of these particular national, uh, you know, repressions, you get, you don't get the, you know, Ukrainians repressing Ukrainians, Kazakhs repressing, it's always an outside other of sorts. 
Yeah. And actually, I mean, I just while, while Steve's on the line, I mean, I, I just say that it's Steve. Steve's got a great article about the, uh, the Kazakh uh, Gulag, uh, the Kazakh Gulag Museum, which I found really helpful, actually, exactly in thinking. And it's part of a great volume by Steve Norris, which, which looks at a lot of um, Eastern European countries in the way they're kind of museifying um, traumatic past in various ways but that prevalence of the kind of the other that's outside the country that's responsible for all of this suffering and that the there's a sort of reluctance to um to sort of take any of the blame on oneself uh, sort of domestically was very striking to me across that volume i want to say that it is absolutely complicated and not even as uh, as complicated as as Steve said because when i've been to magadan yeah, i i heard about poles jerzyski was a pole uh, you heard about jews uh, in the polish memory of the soviet repressions it is also like uh, now it is absolutely different now now we are absolutely you know memory changes is framed by the political situation but uh, till february 24 a lot of Soviet repressors were Ukrainians, uh, not only the um, nationalists, the, uh, Ukrainian nationalities, nationalists and Banderovce, but also, you know, in frame of the Soviet, those who repressed and supported the, the Soviet regime. So it is very, very complicated. And I think that this colonial approach uh, to this memory is very needed in uh, in the future to understand because it is fight. If you go to the regions, you will see these tensions between groups, and that uh, not always Russians are the the perpetrators, but sometimes Jews, just sometimes Poles. It is very difficult question for me because uh, I think that you know with the social trauma. For sure, I, I I think that we are traumatized societies here in the center and Eastern Europe, uh, and and in Russia for sure. But uh, is it a collective trauma? No, here I wouldn't say. I don't even think that this concept of trauma helps us. If you are traumatized, you try to work through this trauma, and we do nothing. We use and abuse this past all the time. What I think is much better to describe what is going on is this concept of victimhood nationalism. It is absolutely visible. And when we talk about Russia, we, uh, and now we, we because, uh, you know, now the Soviet soldiers who died during the Second World War are Russians. They were nationalized, even if they are not. But this, it is absolutely fantastic how this new national identity was constructed. And yes, you have a lot of victims there who suffered from different, you know, groups. And uh, especially in, on this official level, uh, when we discussed about the, the Soviet repressions, it, because they were acknowledged, we have the wall of Sarah. Uh, in the Moscow city center unveiled by Putin and he said that the best people of us were killed yeah so it is like but but who but Jerzynski, who was who was Beria what what was their nationality so I I, I think that this concept of victimhood nationalism uh, if we like deal with it we would we will better understand uh, the situation but it doesn't mean that we are not traumatized here I do agree with uh, Timothy Snyder uh, that we are traumatized and what is going on with these elections uh, we have and with difficult political situation it is the result of the fact that we haven't worked through very, very different, uh, difficult past we have in, in, in this region and Russia for sure also.
The other thing too is, especially for you know, twentieth century or even late nineteenth century, but mainly twentieth century uh, memory and national identity, the traumatic event is a foundation for the creation of a nation, right? You can think of, of course, the Holodomor. You can think of certainly Holocaust for for Israel. You can think of the Armenian genocide, and that doesn't. Those narratives don't have a lot of room for for nuance here, right? Because they're supposed to unite the nation through the trauma, right? Um, so, given the fact that you know, as you said a few minutes ago, Zuzana, about it being this very individual family. There's no collective reckoning. There's no collective uh, discussion, at least in, uh, in in Russia, for sure. Does Stalinism and the repressions of the Soviet period, does it still serve as a social trauma? And by that, I mean that it's, a, it's something that kind of encapsulates a large part of society and informs the way people interact politically, socially, culturally, however, their memories. Does it still hang over this region as a as a social issue yeah i mean i for a long time i was very kind of skeptical about the the applicant you know the sort of wholesale kind of application of kind of freudian ideas to societies right because societies don't act like traumatized individuals or at least it's, it's very hard to kind of say that their memory acts like an individual's memory and if you repress something it will come out in these uncanny or uh, traumatized ways however um i actually think that the way you just framed social trauma then is actually a very is a very helpful way of thinking about it so in other words i think that if we think if we if we rely too much on the idea that this is a repressed past and therefore society is going to be dysfunctional because it's repressed that past that seems to me to remove some of the agency that that you know, is very crucial to understanding how memory works and how pasts are either resurface or, or are brought back to public attention or are repressed by particular sort of actors in society or in politics. But I do actually think that um, I, I am now more persuaded than I used to be that this is a really kind of malign influence on the Russian present. And I mean, certainly, as as our discussion I think has shown, you know, that there's there's so much now of the of the gulag past of the terror that's just not been confronted and can't now be confronted, I think, because because informants are, are dying out and so on. So I mean I think that is very clearly dysfunctional. Um I, I don't think it's problematic to say that. But one thing I, I think is perhaps does act like a, a trauma in, in the more kind of classical way is actually the the war victory and and the way in which the costs of that victory are just not um, acknowledged at all. And if we now look at the way in which the war dead um, of World War II are sort of canonized and are used directly to justify the production of more corpses, war dead now. Um, I mean, that is really, I think, perhaps the biggest trauma of all, that 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 the 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 narrative of the war has just not been unpacked at all. And this kind of uh, narrative of, her of heroic sacrifice has got has such a sort of malign influence on the present. I mean, the you know the immortal regiment, these kind of, this kind of cult of the dead, um, is is really um, pervasive now in in contemporary Russia. So in a way, um, yes, obviously the the, the terror is a, is a trauma that's not been confronted and processed properly. But I think in some ways, actually, the the failure at all to kind of deal with the memory of the war is is maybe more consequential. Yeah, yeah, that's a real, that's a really good point. Yeah, Susanna, this issue of social trauma. 
Oh, so such a short answer. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's like I can't imagine. No, I, you know, it is. It is funny because no, I don't have. Depending on a group to to whom I'm talk uh, about my research, I I, I give some other like uh, explanations. But what if I should say what I try to do through my research? For sure, my research is very academic research. Yeah, I really try to understand people and to understand those with whom I talk to, to understand their perspective, not to impose on them. It is what was uh, very difficult at the beginning with my research on the Russian uh, new martyrs and when I started to talk to the religious people because they were convinced that I would try to find something and then write something about them. No, I really try to understand the approach and that's uh, what interests me. Uh, it's not to find easy answers but really like to dig and to understand and what is fascinating for me and what I try to do in my writings is to show that really you can find absolutely different human words in Russia. And when you talk about repressions and memory of repressions, there is no one memory. There are absolutely different memories. And there is no, because there is no common memory. They haven't agreed for anything. So, you know, what you will find in, on the Solovki in Magadan, even if it has the same stone shape, other uh, feelings, emotions, and uh, knowledge is like hidden be be behind it. And I try to kill it and try to write it in such a way to explain to the public. Susanna, is there a particular thing, respondent story that you heard or come across that just kind of has, you know, when somebody asks you, what do you do? Like, tell me what, what you do. Is there a, what's the story? Is there a particular story that you heard or that you tell people that kind of captures both your interests, but also says something about the issues you're dealing with? You know, I'm uh, I'm not expert who predicts what will be <laughs> in the future. We only yeah. have, you know, a couple what minutes. I, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, mm, the carnival of memory was preceded by also the time what was uh, called by Alexander uh, Etkin repression of repression. So between uh, probably the, the period that you made your research and I made my our and I made my research, this memory of repressions also passed through different waves. And uh, as the history is like that, I I it is like optimistic version. Now we are in the moment that this me memory is like repressed, but we will. We'll see how the situation will develop and here i would like uh, to ask uh, that question you know we can be like very pessimistic but i would like to tell you when the solidarność movement appeared in poland i i was very small child in that moment and everybody like crossed their fingers for poland uh, and yeah, it was really great uh, civic movement, which now turned to the disaster. Because if you look on our political elite, it grew from that beautiful movement. And I think this is the history and the social life. If you look on Ukraine, how many revolutions they had till the moment when they became aware that they really want to fight. Uh, so many Ukrainians passed through Warsaw. 
and Poland. You can't even imagine how many of them we met and absolutely from different regions. And you see that they really want to fight for their land at the moment. I think what, what will be very interesting, and for sure it will be used, uh, the memory of repressions will be used, is already used, uh, in the former republics of the Soviet Union, what is going on in Georgia, in Kazakhstan, Mongolia, you know, it is like, this is very interesting. This memory and this past will be used in different forms. And I think it will also be used in Russia with time, because I don't believe that, uh, I, I think that, so maybe I am too optimistic, but I think that uh, we have a clear information from China and India that we they they, are, they don't like to make wars like let's make economic other kind of wars but not you know regular war like that so that's I I think it will be there will be a change yeah and this is not the future uh, that's, and looking on our region yeah and what what happened to Poland what is now in Ukraine uh, you know Baltic states look on Georgia it is really like yeah it is a fight it is a very long social process but. But let's try to be optimistic. Uh, Polly, uh, you know, as a, a, someone who loves working in archives, you know, there's always this, well, not always, I should say, but there's, if you're lucky, a moment where you're just like, you, you run across that document that's just like, ah, this is it. Did, did you, is there a document that kind of represents that, you know, for you? I'm always curious as to these kind of stories that people tell. I, you know, I had those, I felt like I had those kind of moments of, you know, many times a day. I really, I just, I, um, I, you know, I can't think of any particular kind of smoking gun, but that wasn't really kind of what I was, what I was looking for. I mean, actually just what Susanna was just saying then about the kind of variety of stories really took me back to some, I think my favorite sources that I looked at were readers' letters to writers. So it, it, this really kind of personal form of communication. So even if people sent the letters via, you know, a particular journal or they didn't know how to reach them, so they'd write to, you know, the journal Novimir or Literatorna Gazeta, but that they clearly saw these letters as really private, intimate forms of communication. And, you know, to writers, you know, really Soviet writers, people like, you know, Konstantin Simonov or Yuri Trifonov, and they would just share these incredibly detailed, harrowing, personal, private stories with them. And that this to them was really an important way of, you know, telling their own stories of what had happened in the war or, or during the terror. Um, and I, you know, I found it fascinating that works that we might think of as really kind of quite staid or conservative or orthodox, you know, Soviet literature actually elicited those really personal stories and that, you know, it's something that Denis Kozlov also wrote about a lot in his book and, you know, the way that Norvi Mir gets these thousands of letters. Well, they're, they're some of my favorite sources too. Um, you can really feel the kind of emotional um, investment that people make in those letters. You know, given the war, Russians' invasions of Ukraine, the, as Polly, as, as you pointed, alluded to, like the, the constant presence of World War II across the board, like not just in one, you know, Russia or Ukraine, it's really the whole region is saturated with this constant memory of World War II. Um, what do you think, you know, are the prospects, like where can this memory go? Um, what are some of the challenges you see moving forward to not just 
deal with that past that both of you are dealing with, but also dealing with the re-traumatization of, you know, arguably somewhat traumatized population? I mean, I would say I'm fairly, I'm pretty pessimistic, really. I mean, that the, the sort, you know, that this is, this has been so much, I think the story of, you know, what Susanna was talking about earlier, the carnival of memory, right, that has gradually just sort of shrunk and shrunk and shrunk to a, a you know, a, a number of very determined actors who are absolutely determined to, you know, to keep on excavating the Stalinist past, to keep on telling these stories. And I, you know, they're still doing it now. And, you know, Memorial is still doing it, despite, you know, an absolutely incredible amount of pressure and persecution from the state. But um, I, I really am pessimistic about where that activity is, you know, to what extent that activity is going to be able to continue at all. Um, I don't know. I think one thing that will be interesting is seeing how the various kind of new emigre communities or expanded emigre communities that, that have been formed by this vast kind of brain drain out of Russia, um, whether they will sort of engage in some of that work. Um, obviously not right now. It's it's all too soon. But, um, you know, that that could be an interesting development. But domestically, it it's it just feels like that that was always an embattled kind of section of of civil society and now it it seems to have reached a kind of critically uh small mass but i don't know how you feel susanna about that you know dramatically yeah but uh well my my let's don't talk about you know the 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 private situation, yeah, and uh, because we are really simply involved uh, in in what is going on. But my scientific research is absolutely because I recently, just before the war, I, I I started a new project on the memory of Soviet repressions in the Russian Far East from the colonial perspective. The idea of the project, uh, and I collected a great team of researchers from China, uh, Japan, Russia, and uh, and Korea, and we wanted to look how memory of repressions is uh, uh, entangled with other memories of other trauma uh, and other colonizations uh, in that region. And the project is simply frozen. And uh, to be honest, uh, I don't I, I don't know if it will be possible to uh, to make it in a few years in the future because it is very difficult. So it is really uh, I, I had this idea because I, I made my research on the monuments, first monuments, then this religious memory and particular approach to memory of Soviet repressions. And now I, I had this idea of. Uh, of the post-colonial approach and uh, in Russia, because it, I always made my research in Russia, but probably I will have to make, change the uh, region here because it's simply, it is still, you know, it is simply on the, I, I, you know that we can't cooperate because I have my partner there and uh, we are in the touch, but still it is even for her at the moment, it is very difficult yeah, and situation. So yeah, absolutely disaster. <laughs> That was Polly Jones and Zuzana Bogomil. Polly Jones is a professor of Russian at the University of College, University of Oxford. She's the author and editor of numerous books about Soviet cultural history, memory, politics, and literature, including Myth, Memory, Trauma, Rethinking the Stalinist Past in the Soviet Union, 1953 to 1970, and Revolution Rekindled, the Writers and Readers of Late Soviet Biography, Zuzana Bogomil works at the Institute of Archaeology and Ethnology at the Polish Academy of Sciences, and her books include The Enemy on Display, 
the Second World War in East European Museums, Gulag Memories, the Rediscovery and Commemoration of Russia's Repressive Past, and a co-edited volume, Memory and Religion from a Post-Secular Perspective. I'm not going to give any takeaways for this interview. Um, uh, there's a lot to chew on, and I'll just leave it, let it stand, just like some of the older interviews before we started doing this takeaway thing. Um, so as you know, I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, I really encourage you and ask you to take a moment, share it on social media, tell everybody you know to listen, anyone who's interested in, in post-Soviet space, etc. Or you can, you know, if you have a question or a comment, please drop us a line at, on Facebook or Twitter or at srbpodcast.org to let us know what you think. And as always, I'd love to have your financial support. Uh, this is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and therefore it relies on the support of individuals and other institutions to keep it completely free of paid advertising for listeners. So please help it keep it that way. Go to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button and consider joining the table of ranks. Until next time, bye. You're coming from town, your face turned to this sound. On your way up or on your way down, I want you to step at this station for identification. I'm going to turn it over to your sound dimension, your music producer. Everybody on the ball.